Welcome back to the Wrong Advice Podcast. I'm your host, John Picciuto, and I'm very excited to have my new friend, Mr. Jack Rains, on the line with us today. Jack, how you doing, buddy? Doing well. Appreciate you having me, John. Uh, very excited to have you here, Jack. Can you uh, go ahead and give a quick introduction to the listeners? Yep. So my name is Jack Rains. I am a 25-year-old living in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I split my time between writing a finance blog and working for the popular finance meme page, Liquidity, <laughs> if you guys are familiar with that. Um, some quick highlights about me. I turned six grand into 400 grand day trading my retirement account during COVID. I ended up losing half of that in about a day, so stopped trading after that. And now I'm here uh, writing a blog and talking to John about it. Fucking awesome. I love that. By the way, this is a uh, curse uh, free zone. So feel free to uh, let the F bombs fly. Um, oh, love it. Love I, it. Uh, I spent a vast majority of my weekend diving deep into your blog. And I was obviously enthralled with the story of turning $6,000 into $400,000 and sort of like how that all happened. So for context, I'm 36, you're 25, you're where I was 10 years yep. ago. But talk to me about what that process was like growing up in Georgia, going to college in Georgia, and then like what precipitated you quitting your job, trading vast sums of money, losing vast sums of money, and what that all sort of entailed. Yeah, so I'm from uh, I'm from a little town called Tifton, Georgia, in South Georgia. I grew up playing football, basketball, running track, typical small high school, play every sport. Um, I was offered an opportunity to walk on at Mercer University. So Mercer is a small Division One school. Uh, we're best known for beating Duke in the March Madness tournament, like <laughs> seven years ago or something like that. Nice. Um, but anyway. That actually happened my junior year of high school, and that was part of the reason I ended up going to Mercer, because that made the name stand out. Um, earned a scholarship after two years and ended up being captain and started a defensive end my senior year, which was pretty neat going from a walk-on to that. Um, I started working at UPS as a financial analyst in February or March of 2020, which is you know right around the time COVID hit, and... I, um, I went from being, I was in the office for about eight days and then we went <laughs> fully remote. So my entire like corporate America existence under normal conditions was less than two weeks. Um, my whole game plan was work there for two or three years and then go to grad school. Mm -hmm. My senior year of college, I got accepted to Columbia university's MBA program through oh, nice. a deferred enrollment option. So basically the way it worked was instead of working three or four years and then applying to get an MBA and going to Columbia or whatever, um, Columbia and a few other schools offered a deferred enrollment option where I could apply as a college senior. And if I get accepted, then work two or three years and then go. But you're already in. Um, so the UPS thing was just like decent finance job. And then I figured I would go to Columbia and then go work for like McKinsey and company or Goldman or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the, the higher callings of corporate America are either IB or consulting. That's what every overachiever that doesn't know what they <laughs> want to do wants to do. Yeah. Um, so to the trading thing. So like, I think probably every other like 20 something guy, um, COVID hits and everybody starts trading because we have way too much free time. The stock market's erratic and like every platform from Robinhood to TD Ameritrade offers zero commission trading. I had started messing around a little bit and like I had a group text with two friends back in January. We were all applying for jobs and we were bored on our computers and we saw Tesla and then Virgin Galactic both go nuclear. And so we start FOMOing. We have like, you know, five or $10,000 and we're like, Oh, if we just find the next Tesla, like we can make a million dollars on some call options and never have to work again, even though we had never worked in the first place. So I start seeing this stuff on Reddit and Twitter and then CNBC about this weird disease popping up in Western China and like then international travel slows and the market started to dip, but it hasn't really like crashed yet. And I just threw all $10,000 I had into some spy puts um, for those profit Jack, of the market. Jack, for those who don't know, uh, explain. I mean, I, I was an economics and finance major, so I'm familiar, but explain what call and puts are for the listeners. Yeah, sure. So normally you could just buy stock in a company or in an index fund like the S&P, which is a group of stocks and 
if the stocks perform well, you can make money when the price goes up and you sell. Uh, you can make what we would call leveraged bets or investments with options. So a call option essentially gives you the right to buy 100 shares of the stock at another price by a future date. Right, a predetermined, so, a predetermined price at a predetermined date and the the return is predicated on that time period and that dollar figure. Correct. So to keep it very simple, if you buy call options and the price goes up a lot within the time period on that option, you can make an outsized return by then just selling the option. Same thing with a put option where if the price drops a lot within a specified period of time, then you can make a lot of money by then selling that option. Mm -hmm. So I was betting on the market declining by buying put options on the SPY ETF, which is uh, it tracks the S&P 500 or about the 500 biggest companies in the U.S. And anyway, the market did tank because you have COVID. Then we had Saudi Arabia and Russia started pumping even more oil when there was already a huge supply glut because they couldn't come to terms on the OPEC agreement and financial markets crater. Like they're dropping seven or eight percent in a day. I had never seen anything like it. There hadn't been anything like this since really the 1987 flash crash for like intraday movements. And I turned 10 grand into like $35,000. And I thought I was the next Jordan Belfort, <laughs> um, maybe Michael Burry. I went, I went and watched the big short that night to celebrate Such it. Like a great me and my movie. girlfriend did. Yeah. And so naturally I think that the market is going to keep crashing because Bill Ackman, the like well-known billionaire <laughs> hedge fund guy. Yeah. He goes on CNBC saying that the world is going to hell. So I'm like, hell yeah. Like we're betting on the downfall of America. Like we're tracking me. And, there's like 20 of us now on this group text. There was initially three people. So we're tracking like the COVID death tracker, the jobless reports, like all the economic data is awful and we're just getting started. And then Jerome Powell does this cool thing called quantitative easing, where <laughs> the Federal Reserve starts basically printing money. It's more nuanced than that, but sure. there's a lot more money going in to support financial markets. And I said, like, oh, like this is basically the waving the white flag. And I was wrong. The market had its quickest recovery in history. And I lost twenty five thousand of that thirty five thousand. And basically round trip from 10 grand to 35 <laughs> back to 10 in about two and a half weeks. And meanwhile, you were um, working full time, right? I was supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, I was, I was in the office for the first week of this and I would like go to the bathroom stall, right. And market open. So I like wouldn't be distracted. And then when we went remote a week later, it was game over. I was splitting my time between trading stocks, playing call of duty and moving my mouse to <laughs> yeah. pretend to be working. Yeah. So you're active, um, right. Yeah. So that freaked me out. And then I was like, okay, I was just like a dumbass 23 year old. Um, let's just throw some money in a retirement account, like open a Roth IRA. I put $6,000 in to just throw in index funds and be a long-term passive investor. And then two weeks later, uh, one of my friends texts me and says, Hey, DraftKings, the sports betting company is going public through a merger with a spec. Yeah. And I had no idea what that was for like those who don't know. Normally when a private company goes public, they hire a bank to help them price their IPO or initial private offering where they sell some new shares in the company for say $500 million. And then the company is now publicly traded where you and me can buy stock. A SPAC basically flips the process around. So SPAC stands for special purpose acquisition company and Anyway, SPACs are essentially bank accounts that are publicly traded. There are like 100 SPACs in the market right now. If you buy shares in this SPAC, if they'll go find a private company to take public, and then if you hold those shares through the merger, you will then own that newly, uh, newly publicly traded company. So with DraftKings, the SPAC called Desert Eagle had like $500 million. Um, and they said, Hey, DraftKings, we'll give you $500 million for one tenth of your company, which values DraftKings at $5 billion. Um, so all of the shareholders of that SPAC would then own 10% collectively of DraftKings shares after the merger. A couple of things to note about this are one, all SPACs price their deals at $10 a share. And before the deal closes, if you own shares of the SPAC, you can redeem it for 
$10 to share money because that money is just sitting in a bank account. So there's like functionally no true risk before the merger closes because there has to be money to back those shares. And then two, SPACs tend to come with warrants, which are similar to the call options that we talked about earlier. Um, all of these warrants have an 1150 strike price, which means they give you the right to buy shares at $11.50, but they have a five-year period to expiration, which is a really long time. Mm-hmm. Most call options don't go further out than about two years. So if you think the company has good prospects to climb from $10 to 1150 plus, you've got a long time that you can sit on the warrants. Um, and there's some other like nitty gritty things that kind of covers everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching DraftKings. I don't buy it, but it goes from 10 to 20, right? And the warrants, they go from like a dollar, a dollar 50 to like $9 because they so give you the right to buy the stock at 1150. Yeah. So you missed out on nine X, right? Right. But my thought was, okay, has this happened before? Virgin Galactic went public through a SPAC six months earlier. Same thing. So my next thought was, I have to find the next SPAC because like, this is a no brainer. Mm-hmm. And then this company called Nikola Motors, uh, that's taking, they're an electric vehicle trucking company with a CEO, Trevor Milton is going public through the SPAC VTIQ. I think the guy's a snake oil salesman the first time I see him on TV. <laughs> I mean, nothing he says makes any sense at all. He is so full of shit. And yeah. then I like look him up and he's had multiple like previous SEC, companies where yeah. he, yeah, he hosed investors. But like the warrants are sitting there at like $2.50 and the stock's at like $12. I'm like, all right, it's pretty close to the floor. And everybody's looking for the next Tesla right now. I'm just going to throw six grand of these warrants. And I turned it into like 18 grand in a week. I sold too early. I would have ended up making almost a hundred grand off of the trade if I'd held because it, it, the stock hit 90, like a week later, which was just bonkers. To and me. zero vehicles. <laughs> right. Yeah. They Well, they had that one truck that they rolled down. Yeah. The one truck. I don't yeah, know if right, you saw yeah. it. No, yeah. I did. I did. Yeah. Gra- gravity powered. Um, but I just start, you know, flipping these SPACs. I'm just trading warrants. We make a Reddit group and a discord group. And we have guys that have built bots to scrape SEC filings and Twitter to see like, what SPACs are going public. Like if there's a SPAC with a deadline coming up with a decent management team, we speculate that they'll like make a merger. We ended up finding Fisker Automotive going public before the news even came out through that very thing. So I get to 200 grand and I quit trading warrants and just start trading the shares because I know that I have like, I can capture or minimize my risk because Mm -hmm. I can redeem the shares for $10. So I hit 400 grand like last February and I should have cashed out. My dad told me to cash out and keep in mind, I'm doing all of this in a Roth IRA. So there's no tax liability. Didn't sure. have to pay a dime in taxes. And he was right. I had turned six grand into 400 grand at 23, 24 years old. I should have cashed out. But in my head, I just made 6,000%. And if I made another 150%, then I'm a millionaire at 23 or 24. So it's like, what's another 150%? And that was the week that the market topped. Um, I didn't get blown up then because like I said, I had my risk calculated, so I didn't lose much money, but I started reallocating into warrants, which didn't have that floor. And I lost a good bit of money there. And then I just started trading more and more and more aggressively, but that market just wasn't hot anymore. It was very, it had been very bubbly. Now it wasn't. And it ended with me betting on a company that was not a SPAC that used to be a SPAC, but that like safety floor was no longer there. And I held $300,000 in warrants on this company called Catapult going into August earnings. And I got absolutely throttled. Ooh. I lost $150,000 in 60 seconds. And that, that'll, that'll do a number to you. So Ooh. I all my money is in index funds now. I have not actively traded anything since then. I don't believe. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my trading journey. About five minutes. Jack, so explain something to me. So you're 22, 23 years old. You're working from home. I mean, I got caught up in the AMC's and the you know to the moon and the Doge and all that stuff. And I did fine. You know, it's all bullshit in my opinion. You know, it's all speculation and you know meme stock buying. It's like nostalgic. People are trying to like get in on something that they think they're missing out on. And you know, when the world shuts down and you're stuck at home. And what else is there really to do? Um, I don't know yep. about like your your upbringing, if you come from an affluent, wealthy family, but I would imagine that process of going from six thousand to four hundred thousand was like a wild ride, right? I mean, I just listened to it and it sounds insane. And you know, in a twelve month period of time to turn that kind of coin, 
what is like the implications that it has on you as a person when you like have that swing, right? When you go from six to 400 and 400 down 150 in a day, like what does that do to you as a person? So it's, it's weird. It's kind of a paradox, but one it's, it's very euphoric because like, that's just so much money to make, especially at like a very young age by, and it wasn't like I, it was like a high paying salary job. I was clicking buttons on my phone and my laptop. Mm -hmm. Um, so it does that, but it, it really takes over your head because it's all you can think about the money. Like, like, could there be, and when you're holding these massive three, $400,000 positions, like you're constantly refreshing the news, seeing if something's going to come out, it's going to help or hurt your position. Like checking your portfolio every 15 minutes, every conversation that you're having with like friends and family, girlfriend, all goes back to the market. And in hindsight, it was, it was pretty fucking toxic. Like looking at it now, it, it had, like I couldn't really focus on anything else. Um, but the other thing is you normalize it. Like I made, I would make like $40,000 in a day and like, it would be cool, but you know, it, it's just kind of a number on a screen. And that sounds so almost like entitled to say, because I like, I grew up like upper middle class. I definitely didn't miss any meals. Like I had a very good upbringing, but it's not like I grew up with just millions and millions sure. of dollars. Like that was a lot of money to make. You know, I had a, my job was paying me $53,000. Like I, I'm, I'm paying for all my own stuff. So, uh, yeah, it, but you just normalize it when you've been doing it for a year. Um, now, but when you lose that $150,000 in a day, the first thought is, Oh, I just need to make it back because I'd done it before. Gambler's mentality. Um, yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. But the best thing I did was take a step back and realize that I was still up $144,000 in about 15 months that the market conditions had shifted and that it just was such a time suck. I didn't feel like I had like wasted like year 23 of my life, but looking back on it, I could see that if I kept doing that, I would just be trying to gamble this 150 grand into a million dollars when I could spend that time just one experiencing life more or two, like developing other skill sets that I could just make more money with. Oh, uh, love that. So it, it was like, a, it was like a lot of stuff just hit me at once. Like I think trading, you can make money doing it. I know people that do, but it is a zero sum game in the short term. Mm -hmm. And unless you are just the best of the best, it's like the opportunity cost of spending all of your time trading versus like, like I write a lot now, which is both a lot more fulfilling and has turned into a pretty good income stream. And like, there's so many opportunities like that. I just think trading probably isn't the best one at this point. I have to give you credit as a 25-year-old human being to be able to cognitively shift your working output to something that is both more fulfilling and conservative and hits you in a different way than that, you know, gambler's mentality of trading does. Like yep. one reoccurring theme that I have on my podcast is could 25-year-old John have enacted the change and the lessons that 35 year old John has learned. Right. And to me, I don't think I could have, right. Like my life experience is such that what I've learned over the last 15 years, say from 25 to 35 was what it was because that's how I had to go through it. It seems to me like you've just, you know, truncated a, uh, 15 years worth of life lessons into a, you know, 24 month period. Um, and, yeah. and then got to give credit where credit's due because being able to have that cognitive ability to learn about yourself and what makes you happy and the things that you want to pursue at your age will give you incredible service later on in life. Um, which kudos to you. That's fucking awesome. Um, talk to me about how you hit that sort of reset point where you were like, okay, I did this. I've got this good amount of money in the bank. Where does the ball go from there, right? You decide to quit your job. You just start to start writing. How does that process sort of unfold? So first I was going to ask, did you come across my travel blog? Because the other thing that I did between August and now I've, I've been to 24 different countries in the last like nine months. Um, I didn't read I don't the know if you saw that. I didn't read the travel blog, but I read, um, my favorite piece was 25% loaded because I relate, yep. I relate to that one greatly. Um, and the time and money uh, piece, uh, I relate to quite, uh, quite strongly. So for context for you, um, I took a job, a new job in March of 2020. I worked in the office for two okay. days before going remote. And then I was oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, super nice. And I got laid off in August of 2020. And at 35 years old, 
you are stuck at home, unemployed. I had a very nice severance package. And I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with my life? Like I had worked up to yep. a certain point to get this job that I failed at, un- unabashedly failed at. And there was obviously extraneous circumstances due to the fact that I was home and not learning in the office and whatever. But I failed miserably at what I was doing. Yep. And it took me that sort of loss to figure out what the fuck I wanted to do with my life. So I literally packed my car with a bunch of clothes and food and tents and shit. And I drove around the U S for about 27 or 28 days, put about 6,600 miles on my Jeep. And I realized what I wanted to do with my life. And that was become a photographer. And for the better part of the last two years, what I've been doing and earning an income and making a living is by taking pictures. And I could never have experienced life the way I did without that trip, right? I could never be in the position that I am now without that trip. And uh, I do have the uh, the need to read that uh, travel series because I think travel is one of the most eye-opening experiences you can have. Obviously, I wasn't allowed to leave the country <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But you were afforded that opportunity. So talk to me about how that impacted you. Yeah. So there was uh there's this book by Rolf Potts called Vagabonding. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I was reading, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Ferriss. I recently oh, yeah. came across an, a Tim Ferriss interview with him from four years ago this morning that, uh, that I was like reading, but there, there were a few different things. So I had this in January of 2021, like while I was still trading and stuff, um, I was on like, I used to hate flying and I was going on a ski trip to Colorado. And whenever you hit turbulence, my brain always goes to, oh, what if the plane crashes and you die every single time, like clockwork. And but this time my brain takes it a step further. And it's like, and then what? And I just have this like almost like existential panic out of nowhere. And it was weird because I hadn't really had that before. And it like it just kind of freaked me out. It gave me a like I was still trading, but it kind of gave me a like, what are you doing type of thing? And that was in the back of my head while I was still trading for months and months. But I, I think trading was almost a like distraction from that. Like it gave me something to like keep my mind busy and then I lose the money and I'm like, okay, it is time that I figure out what I want to do with my life. And, um, I read the book vagabonding by Rolf Potts and it talked about like the benefits of like long-term travel versus just trying to compartmentalize travel into this two week period or whatever that we do with vacations where the whole thing's planned. It's like, no, like travel for travel's sake, not to check off some itinerary. And I was at the time still planning on going to Columbia business school the next fall. So I essentially had one year to do whatever I wanted. And I still had a lot of money saved up even after blowing 150 K where like I could afford to do whatever I wanted for a year. So, um, I've been like visiting some friends in New York and DC and I got back to Atlanta The next week, I got an email from my company, UPS, saying they wanted us to go back to the office. And I called my boss, told her I was putting my two weeks in, and she asked what I was doing. And I said, I'm selling my car tomorrow, and I just bought a one-way ticket to Barcelona for next week. And then I just, like, went and bought a hiking backpack, made sure I had, like, all my forms and stuff I needed to travel, and went to Europe, bought a train pass that would like cover all the countries. And then I just hit like 22 countries in about 117 days and like partied, partied way too much, (laughs) met people from all over the place, like had a watch get stolen, lost a bunch of stuff, but saw the Northern lights, like was like out, you know, like dancing with people in Southern Spain that couldn't even speak the same language as me, like getting drunk with British guys at like a Liverpool game in England. I mean, all of these just, fascinating um, experiences and I was just blogging the whole thing. And it was, it was the, like you said, with traveling around the States, like it really shifted how much I valued experiences over material wealth. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's funny. And again, this goes back to the context of like, could I have learned these things younger? Because like, very, very highly motivated by materialistic items in my twenties. Everything was about, what is the next level up for my car, the next level up for my watch, the next level up for my computer, like all the shit that doesn't matter was what I was consumed with throughout my 20s. Like fake it till you make it, pretend like you're a millionaire. And that was like at at my core, what I was doing, pretending to be something that I wasn't and ignoring the things that like I could have been doing to make myself happy. Um, 
But yeah, life experiences over material things, I think, is one of the great lessons that you learn when you can't go anywhere, right? When you're stuck yeah. at home and you can't experience life, it really makes you realize when you got a room full of shit that you're not touching or using, that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm super curious uh, what that sort of process was like for you. So you spent 100 plus days in Europe and around Europe. And what did that do to you as a person when you came back? So I, I was going to take a step back first. So like we, we like, especially in America, really romanticized traveling. Right. And a lot of people make plans to go do these things and keep pushing it off to someday. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, you kind of just have to make the time to do it if you want to do it. But the, the flip side of that is it's this romanticized adventure until you do it. So <laughs> I land in Barcelona, sleep deprived, barely slept on this nine hour flight because again, I hate planes and I walk into this hostel and I've never stayed at a hostel before. Oh, I can conversationally speak Spanish, but I'm by no means fluent. And my first thought is what the fuck <laughs> are you about to do for the next three or four months? You don't know anybody. You don't know if people here speak English. Like you don't know what you're supposed to do because unlike a study abroad or like a family vacation, you don't have an itinerary. You're just here. And I see these two American guys playing chess and I hear one of them go, Oh, dude, that move was sick. And I'm like, all right, like just two American dudes. I was 24. They were both 23. Introduced myself. One of them just graduated school. The other one quit his job because he made 300 grand on GameStop, which was so ironic given what I was doing. And we get drunk that night and they say, hey, do you want to go to Prague with us on Monday? It's like Saturday night at 2 a.m. And I just pull out my phone, see a flight for like 30 bucks. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And that set the tone for the whole thing. Just you meet people, you don't plan anything in advance, and you just run with it. Mm-hmm. So do that the whole time. I get back, and I'm still, it's December at this point. I've been to 24 countries, and I did miss like my friends and family back in Atlanta. So it was good seeing everybody. I share a house with two other guys, still have my place here. Um, but I just like, one, caught myself catching that travel bug again, like after about a month back home. And then two, it was like, I got back into the routine of like, I was, I was riding more and more and I was now doing stuff regularly for the liquidity meme page, which I can talk more about later, but like, I still wanted some, like something spontaneous in my life. So this guy that I met in Portugal, Canadian dude named Mike, he hit me up and said, you want to go to South America? And I said, yeah, let's go to Argentina for like six weeks. Let's just do it. So we both book a one-way ticket to Buenos Aires and spend six weeks down there. But it's like, I'm kind of like, chasing that next adventure now you know and it's not just in the traveling it's in like the everyday life like the i think it's given me a lot more confidence throw caution to the wind like out of the bar girl way out of my league will unashamedly go talk to her get rejected whatever if mm-hmm. a friend hits me up to go do something just random on a tuesday night like go to like a comedy club or this or that i might have previously found an excuse not to go but now i'm like hell yeah let's do it like and I don't really think about money as much. Like I used to always worry about my portfolio or my bank account. I'm I'm just confident now that like I have a skill set where I can make the money I need to cover my stuff that as long as I don't go blow cash on stupid shit, like I'm going to go do the fun stuff that I want to do as it appears. So mm-hmm. that's probably been the biggest shift. I'm super curious. So like as an outsider looking in, it seems that you're like chasing something, right? So or it was originally like a monetary thing, right? You you chase that high of repetition of like being successful at making money in the markets. And then when that went away, you were like, okay, I'm going to go travel for X number of months and whatever and, and like explore yeah. the world and find myself and what I want to do with that. And then you're chasing like that next sort of travel bug or that next sort of experiential high. Um, do you feel like two years into this now that you're like a more settled person and comfortable in like where your life is at? Or are you still looking down the pike as like what that next, you know, chase will be? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think I'm a lot more like confident and settled in where I am right now. And I think that actually started with the Europe thing. Because um, like, when I was just trading, I was constantly thinking about the next dollar. When I got to Europe, like while I was constantly jumping around and doing stuff, I, I learned to appreciate the present moment a lot more, like really 
fully experience everywhere that I was. And I think writing about it also helped because it like more so immersed me in everything while I was doing it. Mm -hmm. So now while I am still looking forward to those, I guess, future adventures, it's not like I'm like sacrificing the present moment for this like vague future thing. It's just when I get there, I know I'm going to have a blast doing it. Like I didn't spend all of January, like, all right, like I'm about to go to Argentina soon. And then when I got there, it's like, all right, I'm going to see my friends soon. It was like, I was, I had fun with my friends when I was back and then I got down there and we just took everything day by day and ended up kind of jumping all over the place. And it's the same thing now. Like I'm going to, uh, I'm going to Italy at the end of May with my grandma, my 12 year old cousin, and then they're leaving after two weeks and I'm going to stay out there for like another month or so. And I don't really know where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do, but like I know it's going to be fun. Yeah. See, that's awesome because something that I discuss a lot on this podcast is how like from when you're a senior in high school to like getting through your college in your early twenties, everything is at like the next phase, right? So when you're in high school, you get yep. good grades. So you can go to good college, you get good grades in college. So you can get a good job, get a good job so that you can get the next good job to get the better car, the better house, the better apartment, the better TV, the better watch, all that shit. And then when you stop to realize that none of those things or those plans or that five-year period that you've got to look at ahead to is really what you need to be worrying about and you need to you know, sort of settle yourself in the here and now, I think life gets a lot easier. And, you know, oh, 100%. fortunately for you, that has come at a much younger age. And I, and I would be curious to see the generational switch because obviously there's been the mass resignation that's been going on for the better part of the last year in the workplace. And I'm sure that, you know, that, that demographic ranges from 20s to 50s, right? So I'm super curious how like the impact of, of what the last few years has done will have on society because I think it has made people in general more cognizant of the things that are important, which is like time, right? You can't get yep. more time. And you right. touched about that. You touched upon that in your 25% uh, loaded piece. And I'm sort of curious how that, uh, that, that thought process is, is sort of uh, impacting your, your future planning. Because to me, you don't strike me as a person who's looking five years in the future. You're looking very much five minutes, five days, five weeks, et cetera. Um, so talk to me about, about what that, that process is like for you. Because for me, when I was 25, I was just not even remotely cognizant of what my life would be like in five years, let alone 10 years down the line. I think that um, I've Believe it or not, I have my, I wouldn't say I have my whole life planned out, but I do think that I've set it up to where I, I'm trying to not live life backwards, but like the, I have like my life is somewhat compartmentalized where everything I'm doing is very intentional. Um, there's a, I've, I've a, I have a mentor who had, um, who kind of told me one time about like putting the end goal in mind being that like one day you're going to be old and going to die and you have a certain number of years to like do whatever you want to do before you get there. And that's kind of stuck with me. So I look at it like right now, yes, I'm very much in the like adrenaline rush, do whatever, be spontaneous. But it's because I know that right now is the you know best time to do that. Like when I'm like 50, I'm not going to be going and like staying in hostels <laughs> and bunk beds for like $12 a night in Europe. Yeah. But at 24 or 25, when you're with a bunch of other 20-somethings, it makes sense, you know? Um, so it's like, like, I know at some point I do want to be married and have kids, but I'm so all over the place right now that I know that if I'm like emotionally responsible for somebody else's kind of well-being in a serious relationship, it's going to make it hard for me to go out and do all these things while also being as present as I need to be with them. So it's like, I'm in a very unique place in life where I'm financially able to go do a bunch of different kind of crazy things that either I won't be able to later or the experience uh, won't be the same later. Um, and so that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing now. But professionally, I'm also trying to put myself in a spot where I'll make, you know, a lot of money and be successful, but do it on my own terms. Like, I didn't know until very recently, really how much money there was in online writing. But for example, like in my finance blog, I have companies starting this Thursday, actually, that'll pay me between 500 and $750 to like, put a sponsored advertisement at the top of my post. That's with 5100 readers. At 10,000, you can charge a thousand a pop easily. With two posts a week, that's six figures. I think I could be at 30 or 40,000 readers this time next year. And then you're looking at, you're making three or 400 grand writing a blog. 
just by the blog, not including other opportunities that stem from stuff. And it's like, I think that riding online can become a million dollar a year thing that I have the flexibility to do from wherever, whenever. So I'm trying to put myself in a spot where I like maximize the experiences I get out of my twenties while also setting myself up to both be like financially and like life-wise successful as I keep growing. Jack, you strike me as a person who has a level of emotional, uh, you know, like emotional intelligence and emotional maturity that is uncommon for his peers. Um, where do you think that stems from? Um, I, I really think a, the big part of it was like making and losing the money so fast because it was like a, it was like a crash course and like, it was like a decade of investing lessons in like six months. And off of that, like, I, I don't know. I was, I don't, I don't know why exactly I was able to realize that I needed to stop trading. Um, I don't know what the, the source from that comes from. I've always been, I think relatively in touch with what's going on in my head. But I do think that that was kind of the catalyst for what's made me more insightful about most things in life. Like you realize making an extravagant amount of money very quickly did not like make me happy. Losing all that money didn't break me either, but I still have money, which can be used as a tool to do other stuff. And that kind of set the framework for finding the things that do like make me happy or I find fulfilling and also like finding ways to make money on my own terms that I can keep using as leverage to live the life that I want. I'm glad you said that. One of your posts, you you did mention how, um, you know, I'm going to paraphrase. It's not a verbatim, but it was like money doesn't buy yeah. happiness. Money doesn't make you sad, but it does buy you leverage. Uh, yeah. And, I, and I, I really resonated with that because I was very, very poor with my money in my 20s. And it wasn't that I wasn't making money. I was just spending it as it came in. Right. Like I was yeah. just doing dumb shit, bottle service, traveling with, you know, no care Always. in the world. Right. It was just I was chasing stuff that didn't matter. And, it, you know, it took those all that credit card debt in my twenties to like realize when I'm like sitting at home living with my parents at 28 years old, like what the fuck am I doing? Right. Like I need to yep. like get this straight. Um, but talk to me about money as leverage and how valuable of a lesson that is for people who are not able to see that sort of perspective currently. Yeah. So I, I think there's a whole kind of counterculture movement now about money being bad. And I just think that's fundamentally wrong. I think it really just emphasizes like who you are because it gives you the opportunity to do more of the things that you were already doing or already desire to do. But when you have like a significant amount of money, like significantly more than what your expenses are for me, for example, my only real expense is like rent utilities, food, like if I didn't go out, lived off of ramen, I would spend maybe $1,200 a month. Mm -hmm. And that's not that much money. So when you have more money saved up than what you need to spend, it gives you a lot more leverage in deciding what you want to do. Like if you have a job you don't like, you can quit and you can take a few months to find something better or to try to develop a skill that you think will put you in a more employable situation somewhere else. Um, for me personally, it gave me a chance to travel and then just write a ton. And then when I got back, the writing had turned into some financial opportunities. But if I didn't have that kind of nest egg that had come from trading, I wouldn't have been able to just quit my job and travel because I still had the bills. I wouldn't have been able to afford the travel stuff. So like, like we typically sacrifice our time to make money, but at a certain point, money also buys you time because you can just cover your cash burn while you're figuring other stuff out or you could just work a little bit less as long as you're still making enough to pay off your expenses and maybe not make any changes at all. You just don't have to keep chasing that next promotion or working overtime and all this stuff. It's just more money gives you more free time, which gives you a lot more power to make decisions that you want to make. Yeah, I love that. And it resonated greatly with me because it, it is ultimately what has, you know, given me the ability to do what I've done for the last two years, right? So like starting yeah. a creative career is not in the middle of a pandemic is not exactly the best time to do it, right? So you're chasing no, a passion not. and I wasn't making any money, but I had afforded myself the opportunity um, to be able to do that. And now, like I, I tell the funny story. So 2020 was like 
life-wise the most chaotic, insane, terrible year of my life. But financially, I made more money than any year in my entire life, which goes counterproductive yep. to the pot, to the uh, to the pandemic. Um, additionally, 2021 was the worst year of my life financially. I made the least amount of money, but personally speaking, I was the most fulfilled, most happiest version of myself. And now this year yep. is sort of the the culmination of the two events where I'm tying both the monetary aspect and the life aspect to just like be my best self. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's pretty fucking cool, um, that you've already been able to sort of make that switch and make that understanding. Um, you have a plan in place, right? You mentioned how you like want to grow to your blog to a certain number of people so you can earn a certain amount of money. So it could be this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where you get to travel, you get to write, you get to do the things that you love. Um, who inspires you to like sort of run down this path, right? Because I think it's sort of counterproductive, not counterproductive, counter to like culture, right? So like what you're doing is different from a lot of people in your generation or, or really in general. Um, so like what sort of inspiration or people in your life and or like out in the world have inspired you to sort of chase this path so um one of the biggest ones would be dr jim jackson he was the mentor that i referenced earlier he's a like typical southern guy preacher like was previously a preacher at a very big church in houston he's uh he's retired now he's around my grandparents age but um when i was like a little over a year ago just trying to figure a lot of stuff out um, they put me in touch with him and we just chatted about life stuff. He's like a very worldly dude, which surprised me being a preacher. I thought it was going to be like, you know, an almost like religious undertone, but he was very real about everything. And he had told me that right when he graduated college, he just went, um, to Europe for like six months and just like traveled, um, with his, I believe he got engaged right out of college, but him and his fiance, and they just went and saw the world. He's like, there's never a better time to do it than in your twenties. And then I've read a lot of Tim Ferriss's stuff. And I think he is just fascinating. He's an author, investor, started his own company, but he was depressed and was like contemplating suicide for a while. And his life was kind of falling apart because he was so like just consumed with his business and thought the world was going to end. And then he decided to just put it on the back burner and traveled for 18 months in the backpack and went to a lot of the places I did, Eastern Europe, Argentina. And when he came back, he just had an entirely different perspective on like what's important. And I've always just thought people that like do interesting stuff, it's count like it is counterculture, but I think the counterculture stuff is cooler because hmm. while these aren't specific people that have inspired me, I just know so many people that have either are my age and they hate their high paying finance jobs, but it's like, well, if I do this one, then I'll make enough money at the next one to kind of satisfy it, even though I still don't like it. And then I see people that are like 40 that have done that and they aren't necessarily happy. They just have a lot of money. And then like, I've talked to my grandparents and just people from like previous generations and everything that everybody says is I wish I would have traveled more. I wish I would have done more stuff when I was younger. And I, all of that just kind of came together. And I was like, all right, like I'm, I would much rather be 80 and be like kind of bragging in the nursing home to my grandkids about all the cool shit I did when I was 25 than be talking about like, yeah, I made a fuck ton of money. Like I want to make a fuck ton of money, but if that's the crowning achievement of my life, I, I think I screwed up somewhere. Jack, emotional intelligence of a 25 year old that I could have only wished to have had. Um, I could not possibly agree with anything that you said more. I mean, I think the great fallacy in life that we learn in a capitalistic country is that money buys happiness and more money will buy more happiness. But there is, a, to some degree, diminishing return once you reach a certain threshold of money, right? It's like hundred percent, like $75,000. And once you hit 100, like the amount of happiness that that additional 100%, 200%, 400%, doesn't equate to additional happiness. And I think yep. the vast majority of my 20s was spent chasing money, chasing the things that I thought money would buy me, which would make me a happier person because I would have more stuff. I would have more money. I would have more ability to do things because I was making more money. But I never once was introspective enough to look at myself and be like, well, what makes me happy? Like, what is important yep. to me? It was, well, this is what society is saying. This is what the world is saying. I need to do those things. And I think the fact that you're a 25-year-old person who has already learned that lesson, I mean, the sky's the limit for what 
um, for what you can do next. I, th- I think that's pretty fucking awesome. I'm super curious if the writing thing took you by surprise or if it was something that you always did as you were younger. So I've, I've always enjoyed writing, like even if it was like school projects or whatever, like I always thought research projects were very interesting. If it was reading about like some crazy thing that happened in World War II and then writing about it, like I've always really liked the idea of like storytelling to convey points. And I don't know if you're familiar with Morgan Housel and the psychology of money. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read his book? Yeah. So I, I'm, I was a, I was like a huge fan of that because he used, I can't remember how many chapters it was, but these different stories, both from history and personal anecdotes to convey bigger pictures about psychology, money, greed, happiness. Um, I thought that model was interesting. So The whole reason that I started that finance blog, Young Money, was because I actually wanted to get like a full-time writing job with Morning Brew or one of these media companies um, because I I knew I could do that while traveling. I already had decided I wanted like to travel around and stuff. And I didn't have any real experience other than a few articles in Seeking Alpha about stocks and stuff like that. So I was kind of pissed off that nobody would give me a shot. And I saw that I could just start a newsletter on Substack. Um, I'm now writing on Beehive, but similar thing, like a newsletter platform. And I just threw on like Instagram, Twitter, all this stuff. Hey, I'm about to start writing a blog or newsletter about finance and career stuff. Subscribe if you're interested. And luckily, as someone who had made a lot of money trading and wasn't exactly like quiet about it, a lot of people viewed me as a good money guy to listen to. So I got like two or 300 subscribers, like around the time I published the first piece. Um, but the end goal was just to you like keep riding while I was traveling. And then maybe when I get back and I needed to make some more money, somebody would hire me to write for them. And the whole thing shifted in my head right before I left. I sent a cold message to liquidity. Are, are you familiar with liquidity? I'm not on actually, Twitter no. or anything. No. So it's a big finance meme page with about 200,000 followers on Twitter, 600,000 on Instagram. And he has a newsletter exact sum that has 121,000 readers now. And I just messaged him out of the blue and said like, Hey, I want to come write for you. Uh, here's a link to some of the stuff I've written. I saw you had a newsletter. Let me know if you're interested. The only previous interaction I'd have with him was back in June. I texted him and said, Hey, your Spotify playlist fucks. Like I've been playing at this <laughs> pool party all day. And he said, thanks, man. Let me know if you think I should add any other songs. So he liked my stuff. We start chatting and we start like throwing ideas around because like he was, he's looking to expand his stuff. And he told me that he had quit a full-time private equity job to uh, run the meme page. And I was like, how? And he's like um, ad revenue and merchandise revenue, but he puts advertisements on the newsletter. And I was fascinated that you can make enough money from like ads to quit a job. Um, so like I would stay in contact with him while I was traveling. We got back on the phone and then um, I don't know how much of the details I'm allowed to go into with what I do with him, but we came to an agreement where I'm helping with the newsletter and some other stuff um, and making some money from that. And then I'm also now monetizing my blog, but like that conversation with him showed me that basically if you have a big enough audience, you can either do subscriptions and people sign up for it, but I don't think that would really work with what I do. Or if people just like reading your stuff, people will pay to advertise on it. Um, So once I realized that, it went from, okay, I'm going to write till somebody hires me to I want to control like all the IP on this blog and see how much money I can make from it writing about whatever I want to write about with no editorial oversight. And maybe at some point, if somebody wants to like pay me a lot of money to buy it and then I write for them, that's fine. Um, but I just keep seeing more and more opportunities. So Morgan Housel was on Tim Ferriss's podcast a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how collaborative fund, it's the venture fund he works for. They hired him as a partner just to write for them. And he just writes the same blog post and essays he was writing when he was working for Motley Fool and doing columnist articles at Wall Street Journal. But he just writes on their website, like through their stuff because it's good marketing for them. Just having good in-house written content. People mm-hmm. remember the name collaborative fund companies go to them when they want to raise funding because they kind of get a, a feel for their values and stuff through Morgan's writing. And I'm thinking that could potentially be a career path for me. Like if I push Columbia university back a year and then go up there to do my MBA 
and I have like 50,000 readers at that point, I can just go into recruiting like, hey, I want to come write for like your firm for $300,000, $400,000 a year. This guy's done it. It works great. Um, there's just so many opportunities in this writing space. I don't really know what it'll turn into, but just the more work you have, the bigger audience you get, the, the more opportunities that come from that. I think that's awesome. I think that's, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think jealousy is the right word, but you know, to be able to be that, you know, that, you know, that, to have that level of foresight to like be able to plan out a sort of pattern for yourself and like a career path and like the things that you want to do at your age is like, it's, yeah, it's fucking great. I think that's, you know, very, very different from what I was doing at 25. And, you know, yeah. uh, you know, th- you could say that, you know, COVID changed people's, you know, abilities to think about what they want to do with their lives. And that's like sped up sort of that you know, mass resignation, you know, let me be the uh, sole sort of proprietor for my life sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I think that's just really fucking awesome. And I, I got to give you a lot of credit because you've, you've got a plan and you're sticking to it. And, you know, seems like there's there's a lot of great things ahead for yourself. Um, what is, uh, what about your writing career and what you've been doing over the last, call it two years, has given you confidence to be able to do this stuff? Um, I, I think the biggest thing was like, the, the toughest thing was hitting publish on the first piece. And after that, my, like, I think my second piece was called time isn't money. And it kind of hit on a lot of the stuff that we were talking about. And at first I was pretty nervous about it because it wasn't like, Oh, you should buy this stock or this is how to minimize your tax bill using an IRA. It was like, it really like was like it's personal. what was going on. Yeah. It was what's inside my head. And I didn't know if people were going to be receptive to that or think it was weird or what, but I got like 10 times more positive feedback from that. I'm like, and this was people I knew too. So it was like a more, way more personal level, but they all loved it. And I was like, okay, stuff that I'm thinking about a lot, while people might not talk about it, a lot of other people were thinking about it. So getting that early positive feedback showed me that like, all right, this, uh, this will probably work because people like reading real stuff. It's not superficial. Like this is like what's going on in someone's head and it's probably going on in my head too. Hmm. Um, so that, that was the biggest one. Early positive feedback helped a lot. I like that. Yeah. I, uh, I, I used to write quite a bit online for like elite daily thought catalog about like relationships and dating and stuff. And, uh, yeah. I was fortunate enough to have an article go viral. It was called why chivalry is dead from a man's perspective. Uh, I recently read it back and it is extremely cringy and terrible writing. Um, <laughs> that being said, um, what did that first quote unquote viral piece, how did that like impact you from, uh, from a writer's perspective? And then also from like sort of a feedback perspective of like, okay, I'm good at this. So, so that piece didn't really go viral, but the first one that did, um, so I was, I started writing young money last July. Okay. So it's been, I don't know, like nine or 10 months. Um, but I thought the travel blog was actually going to go viral more than that because I thought it was more interesting reading about somebody doing all this stuff, but I'm constantly like kind of AB testing both of them. I might, I might get one or two subscribers a day. And then it hit me that there's these guys that are riding in this space that I follow on Twitter that have a hundred thousand followers. And if there's a way to like get my riding in the conversation with them, not where I'm like shilling it on them, but to somehow add value to what they're doing or talking about with stuff I wrote, they might share it. And there were, there were two pieces. Um, I'd written a previous piece that hinted at how I blew 150 K a day. It wasn't as detailed as my most recent one, but this guy, Nick Maggioli, he's a phenomenal author, been writing a blog for five years. And, uh, he just, he actually just today released his book, just keep buying about stock market stuff. Um, he sent me a copy of it there. I'm currently reading it right now, but he, uh, I, I linked in some conversation he was having about the downside of day trading. I like mentioned my story about blowing 150 K in a day and linked the article and he shared it with his, like retweeted it to his 150 or a hundred thousand followers or whatever. I got a hundred new subscribers in a day. I was like, Holy shit. Like, it's not that my writing isn't great. It's just that I don't have a huge audience to share this with. So if I can like utilize other bigger audiences, this will work. Packy McCormick, another guy with 100,000 subscribers and 150,000 Twitter followers, tweeted a screenshot back in November 
from his buddy saying, I think the best investment is just throwing our money in the dumbest shit possible because <laughs> apparently that worked this year. We had GameStop, yeah. NFTs, like just stupid shit popping off. I've been writing something about like the unrealized capital gains tax bill was being proposed, deleted the whole thing, headline, how much money would you have made if you bought the five dumbest possible investments in 2021? It was like, if you put like 20 grand in like GameStop, the NFT of the rock, like Donald Trump's SPAC and all this stuff, what would you have made? And it was like 2.5 million. So I replied under his tweet and said, yo, I wrote about this. And he shared it and thought it was fucking hysterical. <laughs> and then MarketWatch saw it and they picked it up. And all of a sudden I'm getting an email from a MarketWatch editor I'm in I'm in England, like visiting one of my friends at uh, at Oxford University, and my phone's blowing up. I got like 72 new subscribers in five minutes because MarketWatch and LinkedIn, and like people are talking about it on podcasts. And I was like, "Holy shit!" It's just about finding the right audience, and yeah. that was uh, that was like that just showed me like, all right, being able to leverage bigger audiences with like good work is the best way to get it going. Now that I'm at like 5,000 readers, it's it's growing a little bit more organically. Mm -hmm. um, but that was huge early on. I think that's awesome. And I think it's a good lesson that you can uh, know that like relatability to the content is important because like not everyone yep. has $20,000 to put into, you know, the five biggest meme stocks. But I yeah, think yeah, when, yeah. You, when you like tie it into like personal life experiences like that, people are interested in this story and how it sort of produces like outcomes in their own lives and the relati relatability to it. Um, that's fucking awesome. Um, I like to spend the last bit of every podcast doing a little bit of a Q and a, uh, some of the questions are super easy. Some of them are a little bit more in depth. Um, but my first question is what's your favorite book? Um, it's, it's tough. It's probably between two man's search for meaning by Ooh. Victor Frankel yeah. is phenomenal. Love that. Have you read that one? Yeah. yeah, I read it. Uh, I went to, I visited Auschwitz back in September and read the book like the week before I went. And it, it, it hit different, like seeing all of that afterwards. Sure. Um, that one. And then green lights by Matthew McConaughey. Oh, I was yeah. very, I was surprised, but his book was phenomenal just about his life, like how he goes about looking at stuff. And he kind of views life similarly to I do about like maximizing experiences and going after what you want. Yeah. So yeah, um, those two are both great. One of the best stories that came out of the green light book was, you know, when he was doing the press tour, you know, digitally <laughs> on his yeah. computer for everything was, he was talking about how he turned down like $14 million to be in a rom-com or something. And he was like, it was more yeah. money than I'd ever been offered to be in, in any movie ever. And, and part of me was like, well, you have to take it, right? It's $14 million. How do you say no to it? And then the other part of me was like, well, if I take this role, I will forever be the rom-com per person. And that was what will be yeah. all I'll do for the rest of my career. And the ability to say no things in life, whether they will, when they will not serve you, you know, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now is probably the hardest thing anybody could ever do. And I thought that was pretty 100%. awesome. Uh, yeah. what, what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie. Oh, that is tough. Um, give, give me a second on that one. You can give a couple. Oof. Um, I was honestly a huge fan of, uh, I'm a big Marvel buff and I thought that like both, uh, like infinity war and Endgame are both great. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's the way, and I, I almost appreciate those movies more after looking back at how they like had seeds in all of the early movies going back to like 2009 that then tied into this was uh like that just added to the magic a little bit. Yeah, the Russo brothers storytelling uh is on par with any other writer, creator, producer in uh in the movie space. It's pretty pretty remarkable. Um I What love, about you? I love the I love all of those movies, but I literally watch every single movie. Um The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh I don't know if you've ever okay. seen that. Big, no, big, big fan of that movie. It's with Ben Stiller. Uh, it's both beautifully shot and a wonderful story. And it goes back to sort of like what I was doing with my life. Like he's a 45 year old guy who's like working at a job. The company's going out of business and he's like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do with my life? So I resonated a lot yeah. with it when I watched that movie. And uh, it's like one of those like just comfort movies. I put it on. I love it. It's cinematically beautiful. The story's great. It's, it's, uh, it's a good one. Nice. What's, uh, what's your favorite food? Favorite food. Ooh, I'm a huge fan of like Tex-Mex stuff. Um, I think this, this is so bad, but just like a well done, like burrito with cheese dip <laughs> on the top of it from like, I mean, it could be from the, the place doesn't matter. It could be from Moe's from like 
barberitos or it could be from like a like sit down restaurant but if i mean i think the best food is stuff like that i yeah. think we had a diminishing returns where somehow the really expensive foods kind of suck because <laughs> they try too hard to be fancy like yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of a good burrito and the portions are like this big right it's all 60 61 wagyu 0.4 ounces and like yeah, yeah i'm with you tacos yeah. all, all day um do you believe in an afterlife yeah, I do. Um, it's actually something that I've struggled with a little bit. Like I, I grew up, so I grew up like Southern Baptist Christian and then had the whole existential crisis, I guess you could call it like last year. And, uh, I, I really made myself kind of reset and I was like, all right, like, do I actually believe this? Or is this just something that I believe because I grew up and my whole like family and community was Christian, which is a really weird question to ask yourself because I think we tend to find comfort in the stuff that we're used to. Um, but no, I would say that like, I'm still a Christian, still believe in like the Christian idea of afterlife, but I'm also like, if I have, like, I would be open to, I guess, changing my mind if I either came across evidence or just, you know, decided that I didn't think that anymore, which hopefully that doesn't make me a sacrilegious Christian. <laughs> but I would rather not be like completely blinded and like, I think if you believe something just because you're afraid of the alternative is a pretty shitty reason to have a belief. So uh, I would like to believe it because I actually do. Uh, I love that. Um, the righteousness that people come and the indignation that people come with from a religious perspective is very disheartening to me. Um, but yeah, I agree. I grew up a Catholic, uh, you know, in, in a Roman Catholic family, Italian family, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny. I've this is going to be, I think, episode seventy six of my podcast, and let's say I've had sixty or so guests on. Uh, we're 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 batting around eighty percent of people who believe in something after, and I think that's there's something comforting about that, and and I do do like that a lot. Um, yeah. What's your biggest dream? My biggest dream. Um, I don't know. I would I would like to hit all seven continents. I think that'd be phenomenal. Um, I could have technically gone to Antarctica when I was in Argentina, but logistically it was just going to be hard to do. Um, I'd like to do that. I, I don't know if I have a very specific one. I would just like to like be able to do a lot of different things over the course of my life. Like I want to get to where I'm actually fluent in Spanish. Like I took ballroom dancing lessons cause I can't dance worth a shit. Like <laughs> just being able to say like, yeah, like I know how to do that thing that a lot of people don't know how to do just stacking as many of those as possible. I, I like, uh, I like the idea of being a Jack of all trades, it's oh. not necessarily a pawn on my name, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unintended. I like that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's a great way to live a life. Um, learning something new, constantly trying to better yourself. That that's pretty great. Um, how do you deal with and how do you mitigate regret? Um, I don't know. I, I used to be bad about like regretting both like big and small things, you know, you start thinking about it, but I think you have to look at it. Like nobody makes decisions in the present moment that they don't think is the best decision to make in that moment. So you can't judge your past decisions based on like future information, like whether that's with career stuff, relationship stuff, like everybody's just doing what they think is right at the time. Um, if anything, it's just made me a little bit more, introspective when I am making decisions like, okay, have you thought this through and then do it. So I'm a little bit slower to like impulsively react about stuff, but I don't, I don't tend to regret stuff. Like it still hits. I mean, it hits everybody sometimes, but it's not nearly as big of an issue since I've kind of reframed it like that. I like that. Um, what's the best piece of advice someone's ever given you? Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I still think it was what Dr. Jim Jackson had told me about, like, he called it, I believe living life backwards, but kind of like acknowledging that you aren't going to live forever. So be like incredibly intentional with what you do and how you go about doing it. And regardless of what you want to do with your life, I think it's important to realize like one, you aren't going to live forever. So you can't do like everything. But at the same time, if you set it up right, people can do anything. You just have to be like really, really intentional with how you go about stuff. And that's played a big role in how I've gone about my life for the last year or so. Hmm. I think the uh, the greatest life lesson that I've learned is how to impart uh, intentionality in all that I do. 
in the things yeah. in the things you say and the things that you do, like be intentional, right? Do what you say, yeah. say what you mean, you know, mean what you say, and do the things you say you're going to do, and you know, life can uh, can go well for you. Um, last question: Give me a recommendation for something that you've recently consumed. Uh, it could be a book, a podcast, movie, TV show, whatever. Just something that you've recently consumed that you think everyone should check out. Um, let me think. There's definitely probably a podcast. I'll tell you what, I think um, I'll just go with the book right now because it's pretty fresh in my mind. Uh, Rolf Potts, Vagabonding, um, as someone who's traveled a lot recently, it just gives a phenomenal breakdown of like both the beauty and importance of traveling, like long term for travel's sake. And what we were talking about earlier, like being able to maximize your time and experiences. I don't think there's a better way to maximize those things than by going and seeing the world. Like it's the only, like we literally live in a time where you can go visit anywhere in the world. Like why would you just stay in your one spot? (laughs) So vagabonding by Rolf Potts. It's, it's a phenomenal book about that. Nice. I love that. Uh, Jack, uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I, uh, greatly appreciative of your time and uh, i've got a really cheesy line if you've ever been on my podcast you're part of my family so welcome uh i am uh i'm really honestly sort of blown away and inspired by uh by you i think the intentionality in which you lead your life and the way in which you've sort of grown in a very short period of time is is uh awfully inspiring and uh, pretty wonderful and I'm, and I'm glad to have uh spent this hour with you Um, So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, John, thanks for having me. No problem, man. Take care. You too. See ya.